Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to take a little venture away from what we usually do. I'm usually talking about leadership principles and relationships and dealing with people and stretching out of your comfort zone that way. Today, instead, we're going to talk about stretching out of your comfort zone from a strategic point of view. One of the things I think people need to do regularly is to pay attention to the trends, to anticipate what's coming and be able to steer your business in that direction. So that's the focus today. And the usual topics have to do with digitalization and automation and robotics and driverless cars and the Internet of Things. That's all become fairly routine topics for discussion in most of my clients. But what I want to do today is to stop and consider what all of those topics are actually doing for cities and therefore for employers and employees. So that's what we're going to focus on today. My specialist today is Lucas Neckerman. Lucas has a long career doing a variety of things. Currently, he's managing director at Neckerman Strategic Associates and focused on the emerging new mobility trends and their strategic impact. And I don't mean mobility so much as in flexible working. I mean mobility as in moving around. So cars, buses, transportations, and working accordingly. Now, Lucas began his career in the automotive industry at BMW in the marketing department there, where he helped co-develop the first BMW.com website and helped launch the innovative Z8 sports car, which I know was a lot of fun. After that, Lucas joined Allianz in 2002, reporting to the CEO at the time, which was Michael Diekman, and then did a variety of strategic and line roles throughout his time at Allianz, including ending as commercial director at Euler Hermes in the UK. Now, since then, Lucas has gone on to found his work and his consultancy around this whole mobility trend. He's the author of three books, The Mobility Revolution, Corporate Mobility Breakthrough 2020, and then most recently, the topic for today, Smart Cities and Smart Mobility. Um, Lucas does a lot of consulting with a variety of startups. I won't mention them all, but he's um, in quite demand. So, Lucas, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Wanda. It's, uh, it's, it's such an exciting time in the business, and I love talking about what, uh, what, what's up ahead. Okay. I, well, I'm keen. I think everybody's going to enjoy this, and I am looking forward to the conversation as well. So let's start this whole automation, electrification, and it's easy to talk about that in terms of cars because that's what we think about, you know, driverless cars, et cetera, electric cars. Mm-hmm. But you think it's much bigger than cars. Why? Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, I started looking at this from the context of cars, and I recognized that there were three fundamental trends all around the automotive industry that are causing what I call a mobility revolution. I called them the three zeros, zero emissions, zero accidents, and zero ownership. That was back in uh, 2014. And these trends, they, they, they come out of a combination of the social, political, technological forces, all the various pieces that come together. And um, let me, maybe I can take you through the three of them. So okay. zero emissions, 
that's just electrification, except with a bit more. You know, it's the whole value chain. It's the renewable energies piece that goes uh, uh, straight through to topics like solar. It goes into the issue of how do we transmit energy uh, or where do we generate it, uh, microgrids and things like that. So this, is, this goes beyond, you know, Tesla and Lucid and BYD and others making electric cars. This is really getting right down to the core of how are these cars now being fueled. The second piece is the, the what I call zero accidents. Well, that's the one that's linked to automation, uh, or as some people call it, uh, you know, self-driving vehicles. But I also believe that it, yeah, it goes a lot further than that. Um, so there's this number that keeps getting uh, mentioned: 1.2, 1.3 million vehicle deaths globally every year. But but there's a, a number of things that that get lost in the shuffle. And this is, this is tragic, no doubt about it. And in the U.S., the improvements to road safety, in fact, have been stagnant because more people think that texting seems to be more important than driving, which is a, which is a tragedy in itself. But there's, there's also the issue of congestion, and that alone costs the U.S. economy some $350 billion annually. So there's a lot of things that we can solve with automation or at least address with automation. And the third wow. one... Is is, um, is zero ownership, um, and, and and this is broadly speaking the sharing economy. So if you think of Airbnb and now transfer this into into how how we get around, you know the same the same sort of questions. You know, why do we own when we can share, and 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 you know why do we walk five minutes to a cold parked car that I that I have to drive myself? And I can just call a warm and comfortable vehicle to pick me up and it'll be in front of my house in three minutes and take me to where I, where I want to go. So that's, that's, these are the three elements that I think are coming together. And, and I think when we um, put them together, yes, it starts with a massive transformation in the automobile industry, but there are a lot of other industries and I'd love, love to get into that with you. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I just want to uh, reiterate this because I think there are three very important trends. Zero emissions, so we're talking about environmental concerns here. And I know in the car industry, it's not just the electrification, but it's where are we sourcing the materials and what are we doing to recycle old materials and are those coming from sustainable sources or not? I mean, there's a whole bunch in the climate control issues that are beyond just zero emissions. So that's trend number one. Trend number two is zero accidents, sort of reducing the death rate and the accident rate, and that's certainly applicable to lots of places, but auto is a big one. Mm-hmm. And then the zero ownership trend. Okay, the sharing economy. Um, so talk to us about how that shows up in places other than the auto industry. Yeah, so in my, in my first book, in fact, the, the last two pages, I started speculating about a, a bunch of other industries that will be affected. Now, there, there are obvious ones like energy and uh, your local gas station, public transport, and there are lots of obvious ones, like like one that I sure know a lot about, uh, and that's insurance. But even things like restaurants and real estate, uh, you know, if you don't have a car anymore, um, are you still going to take the car to go out to eat? Um, what about real estate? If you don't have a car anymore, uh, do you really need that garage anymore or those three garages? Um, these are just some of the examples, and, and we're beginning to see that. And I can see it in, in my consulting practice because I'm beginning to get inquiries from, uh, uh, you know, 
parking lot uh, companies that are in the business of parking and and also real estate developers and thinking, boy, can I maybe can I increase the number of residential plots that I build on this bit of land because I don't have to put in parking anymore. If I can put in car sharing, if I can put in um, uh, uh, ride hailing, things like that. So you can see lots and lots of other industries beginning to wrap their heads around it and, and frankly also see the opportunities in this. Mm-hmm. The... Um Sitting, I'm sitting in New York City today, and one of the things that you notice being here from the restaurant industry, for example, is that there has been right. a surge, always was there, but it's even more so today, of delivery. You can get any food from any restaurant anywhere in the city at any moment in time brought to your door. And it's, it's just now the growth Absolutely. of, you know, I'm not going to get in the car and go there, and public transportation isn't the easiest in the world always, so somebody else can bring it to me. And I think we're going to find increasing ways in which a variety of services are brought to us as opposed to we have to go out yeah. and seek them. Sure. Okay. sure. I, I have a similar example. Wanda. I, I was sitting at dinner in a restaurant and um, – I and the person I was having dinner with, we were the only ones in the restaurant, but in the period, the, maybe the half hour, 40 minutes that we were having dinner, I think there must have been about 20 or 30, you know, delivery people picking up things from that restaurant and taking them out to go. And, and it, again, it changes the restaurant industry because it then means, okay, do they still need so many seats or can they just, uh, maybe can, they can even consolidate their kitchens and then you end up with large kitchens somewhere maybe even on the outskirts of, uh, of the town, um, making for delivery as opposed to making for the enjoyment of, you know, sitting at their premises. I think it mm-hmm. hits probably the, the middle-of-the-range restaurants most. Uh, you know, I think the top end, they're still probably the, delivering an, an experience. And I think that's, that's consistent with, with other industries as well. You know, you, uh, in, uh, in Germany, they, they, they chuckle a lot about people pulling up to the Aldi's and the Middles, you know, the low-cost grocers with their Porsches, um, <laughs> whilst wearing, you know, Chanel and, and, and Louis Vuitton. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's the same kind of phenomenon. The, the bottom end and the top end of the industry survives because it, ha- it differentiates because of an experience or it differentiates mm-hmm. on price, but everything in the middle really suffers. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's interesting times. It's really interesting times. All right, so it's easy to see in the U.S. Um, how changes in the car industry affect the entire U.S. economy because I think across the U.S. we are so driven by a car industry. Um, it's not as strong in that sense in other parts of the world. Car ownership was never that big of a deal, and there are other public transportation means um, relative to the U.S. So why do you think all this is important? Like, why should it matter to the average person? Yeah, uh, because, because it does impact everybody, ultimately. Um, while... Maybe in rural areas the trend isn't as far progressed, and maybe in smaller cities it's not quite the same as the cities uh, like you sitting in, in um, uh, New York at the moment, um, and, and and I'm in London at the moment. And you know, cities like this and other cities uh, that are even being built at the moment, mega cities all over the world, where nobody would dream about owning a car, or frankly even going to a grocery store anymore. It's 
you know, and this isn't some future fantasy anymore. This is this is how people live their lives every single day, whether it's, you know, getting prepared food delivered or even getting their groceries delivered, getting their gross groceries delivered, not even by a delivery person, but even by robotic delivery vehicles. Um, uh, you know, you can get everything delivered pretty quickly, and that's to an office uh, or even, uh, you know, to your home. And, and, that enables a lot of things. It allows us to reimagine certainly cities for a car-free future, but it also means that there will be a reallocation of public funds. Um, if we don't have the same revenues coming in from, you know, from fuel taxes, um, if we have a different priority in cities because people are, you know, when they do go out, they'll take ride hailing or they'll take bicycles or scooters or e-scooters or or something else, then it means that the city reprioritizes as well. It's, it reprioritizes how it uses the infrastructure. It also reprioritizes how it uses its money. Okay. Okay. So you can start to see why this has implications for so many different industries, retail industry, shopping industry, grocery industry, services industry, a whole range of things, and all of that's going to affect our lives. And in the extent that it, mm. we're not one of those businesses, it affects our lives and the lives of our employees. You can see how that can lead to dramatic changes, plus the city planning and so on. Lucas, speculate. You know, I know glass ball is uh-huh. never perfect, but how quickly is all of this coming? I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about driverless cars, and it sounds like a great scheme, great thing. But our inter, you know, our Wi-Fi connections are not strong enough to make that viable anytime <laughs> soon, other than rather than in a small microcosm of the world. Yeah, how quickly is this revolution really going to hit us? Yeah, I think I think again, if we think of the different elements, uh, it'll come at different speeds. Electrification, you have some cities, some countries where electrification is already a given. Um, you know, in Norway, over fifty percent of new vehicles uh, registered are electric vehicles, um, and in in other countries, uh, the Netherlands, and, and and even in particular in cities like London and Paris, you'll see high rates of electrification for new uh, vehicles, and 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 that for me, is a given. You know, Tesla is, uh, outsells its German competitors in the two categories that it's active. So uh, I think once the offer of vehicles is out there, um, uh, electrification is a given. In terms of automation, we, we really need to differentiate because we talk so much about, um, you know, driverless cars. But to be honest, I don't really care so much about the concept of driverless cars because what we think about in terms of cars will really change fundamentally. So there are all kinds of new and different vehicle types. And my friend Sven, um, who is um, uh, at Next Future Transportation, where, where I also sit on the advisory board, he made me an overview of literally dozens of new vehicle concepts in the electric autonomous space. And they have anywhere from four seats to 40 seats. And they, they reflect a completely new way of thinking about vehicles. And some of those are still, you know, in the concept stages, but some of those um, are already being tested, being piloted out on the streets, you know. There are so-called level four autonomous shuttles in operation in a number of places. There was a test of an autonomous school bus um, at a place called Babcock Ranch in Florida. A company called Voyage, is, uh, they're doing autonomous trips at a retirement community. Cities are implementing 
driverless shuttles instead of instead of buses on on what we would call thin routes, in other words, routes where there's just not a lot of traffic, and and rather than having a, a regular hourly bus service, they can create an on-demand service with uh, with autonomous uh, um, uh, shuttles. Bearing in mind that you know 50, 60, 70 percent of the cost of uh, public transport is the driver itself, so they can really up their game in terms of um, uh, what they can offer to the public. If they bring these things online, and you'll, 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 you'll you know, autonomy is, is is already given in industries like, like mining, like farming, um, uh, and and progressively we'll see it at places like airports and parking lots and things like that. We'll see that well before we see, you know, um, your, your your father's oldmobile, you know, <laughs> to use the cliche, <laughs> or your regular car driving around. Um, fully autonomously in, in, in the city. Well, you see that, um, I guess it's been for decades now, you get mail delivery in a lot of office buildings through a robotic delivery system, an autonomous right. delivery exactly, system. Yeah. So you can, I mean, it's in a contained environment where you can map it and control it a little bit better rather than on the roads. You can see how a lot mm. of the automation would come quite quickly. All right. Yeah, yeah. And so, you, make, you make a good point, uh, one of freight and logistics. That's another one that's going to be impacted and, and, and fairly quickly as well, just because the business case stacks up so clearly, so clearly when you think about, you know, long distance, straight line um, transport uh, of, of, of goods, um, where presumably also there'll be a different set of regulations, um, perhaps a slightly lighter set of regulations as well. Okay. All right. Well, Lucas, we're going to take a quick break here. I want to just reiterate what stands out to me about this conversation. So if you look at trends and trends in mobility and sort of ask yourself, not just in the auto industry, but in general, what's driving changes that are coming in our ability to move around, for example, we have this notion of zero emissions, so electrification and changes in the value chain that are going to permit that, and that has implications broadly across a whole lot of places. We have this trend for zero ownership, so we're going to do the sharing economy, um, take resources that we have that we are not utilizing 100% and try to generate revenue out of those, um, such as Airbnb. And we also have this notion of zero accidents, of reducing the number of accidents on the road or in transport and moving around. And that now, if you start to think about that, it starts to impact so many different industries, as you said, Lucas. I think it's quite fascinating from the restaurant industry, the real estate industry, insurance, freight and logistics. And some of it, as you rightly say, is already here. So it's not that 30, 40-year horizon when we get all driverless cars. There's a lot more happening between now and that point in time. So, and that's what makes it break. so exciting right now. It's such an exciting time. Yes. Yeah, it is, and it, yeah, it depends on which side of the equation you sit on, whether that's exciting or not. We're going to take a break. When we take a break, I want to come back and talk about what this means for our cities, for changes in our cities and changes in the power structure in cities. And then we'll come back after that one and talk about what does that mean for employers and employees. Lucas Neckerman is my guest today, and the book, if you're interested, is Smart Mobility, Smart Cities. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Lucas Neckerman, and Lucas is currently Managing Director at Neckerman Strategic Advisors. If you want to know more about Lucas, you can visit his website at www.neckerman.net or follow him on Twitter at L. Neckerman, spelled the same way as before. The book we're talking about today is Smart City, Smart Mobility. There are two others, The Mobility Revolution and Corporate Mobility Breakthrough 2020. I just want to connect to where we were in that last segment. And, you know, Lucas and I have talked about this on a number of occasions, his research, the implications, the implications for cars, and so on. And even though having read the book and talked to you many times, I just hadn't stopped to think quite seriously how big, how broad the impact of um, zero emissions, zero uh, ownership, and zero accidents could have on so many industries, and more importantly, on society and how we live. And I have to say, I'm a fan of driverless cars. In fact, I've been dreaming of driverless cars for the last 30 years. It would be joy to me if we would actually get there. I recognize I might be one of a few in my generation, but hey, sign me up. I'm all for it. What I think is fascinating is to stop to consider how this trend is going to impact where you live, the politics, the government, and so on. So let's focus on that, and then I'll come back to the employer side of it. 
So, Lucas, you believe that cities are gaining power and that cities may actually become more important than countries. Why do you say that? What's that about? Well, first of all, cities are, are the ones that are feeling the pain. You know, it's the air pollution, the migration, the flooding, all of these things that are, well, directly related to climate change. Um, uh, so in the U.S., for example, you, you have a bipartisan group of 40 or 50 city mayors, and they've gotten together with hundreds of mayors, um, uh, including many from the heartland, who are committed to fight, fighting the effects of climate change, and, and that's irrespective of what the current administration does. The, the mayors just want to get it done because they have the effects directly at their doorstep. Internationally, you have groups like the Global Covenant of Mayors, the C40. They, they have meetings that are probably as significant, maybe more significant than, than, than the G20 meeting that's going on as we speak right now because they impact our, our daily lives because it, it, it's, it's about the air that we breathe, the, you know, the land that we live on, and, 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 and is it going to be flooded tomorrow? So uh, to, to use one example, in, in Paris, Mayor Hidalgo is... You know, she's pledging to ban diesel and, and many cars from the city center as well. And she's not alone. There are plenty of other cities that are doing it. Athens, uh, Mexico City, uh, Barcelona, Madrid, um, Helsinki. And in, in Paris, you can bet that if the mayor bans cars, this has a greater effect on industrial policy than anything that the president of the country can do. Because just because of the volume and the significance of that city to France. And the same thing applies in London. You know, if um, Mayor City Khan uh, says, look, we're going to um, uh, insist on low emission zones and congestion charging zones, which we've had for a long time, uh, but intensify the low emission zones and make it more expensive dri- to drive in the city, all of a sudden you have a, a real uptick in the acceptance and the demand, frankly, for electrified vehicles just because... Um, uh, uh, you know, it hits people's pocketbooks. And that's how cities can create immediate effect uh, as opposed to what happens at the national and international level, which maybe has, has a long-term view, but, um, you know, you don't usually feel quite as, quite as quickly. And, and, and in some cases, it gets lost somewhere um, in the shuffle. So there's a lot of the, um, you know, number of um, uh, trend data points, I don't know what I want to call them, have projected that we're going to end up with, I think the number is 60 megacities, and that the bulk of the population will live in those megacities, and those cities then, obviously, if most of us are living in cities, that's going to drive change. The cities themselves will drive change just because there's so many people Mm. there. Are you seeing the same kind of trends? Do you think that's going to happen? How quickly do you think it's going to happen? Yeah. So um, the first thing to, to note is, uh, yes, megacities. Um, from a global perspective, megacities, you know, any city that has more than uh, roughly 10 million people. And these are cities that are being created as we speak. In other words, they're being built in, in, in places like China. Um, we have an urbanization rate today in Europe, North America, um, and South America of 70%. So, you know, you often hear that statistic of 70% in 2050. That's actually the urbanization rate that we have today in, in, 
um, uh, both in South America and, and, and in Europe as well. So, so the cities already have a lot of a lot of power, and there's also an intensification, you know, in um, uh, the, the 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 density of the cities is getting uh, greater, um, and it makes perfect sense. It makes them more efficient. It makes them more effective. Uh, the provision of um, uh, you know utilities and things like that is a lot easier to do in a dense city. Um, but at the same time, from a user point of view, you know, from a resident or a, uh, you know, if you're, if you work in a city, if you live there, whatever, you want it to be easy. You want it to be easy. You want it to be livable. You want it to be safe. You want it to um, make a lot of sense. So you need a, a navigator. And, and the big question is then, how does a city, whether it's, you know, uh, an old city that is going through changes or a city that's being built up now into a mega city, how does it facilitate a quality of life that makes it attractive for further growth? So maybe it installs bike lanes, maybe it you know, supports ride hailing and car sharing. Uh, ideally, it provides open data for, for apps like CityMap or Move or Move It, you know, or, or Google, just to make the journey a lot easier. That affects me and, and as a user much more than, you know, than if a president strikes some deal on oil prices because it makes my life easier. Um, and it also means that I can make choices. It can make, like, Will I buy another car? Will I get rid of my car? Can I opt for mobility as a service as my primary mode of transportation? So, you know, for me, a smart city is really about the, the human-centric approach, making it more livable, increasing the quality of life, and all of the bits and pieces that uh, go to, get, go to making, making that happen. All right. So what's your advice and or what are you collectively seeing cities do that impact life. And I take your point, let me just back up for a moment to say, I take your point that the city has more, how the city is run has more power Mm -hmm. for me as an individual living in the city than what happens at a large government scale. Maybe that's a little loose, but there's so much of what the city does that affects my day-to-day life. So I can see that. So what's your advice for cities, for mayors, from either advice or what you're seeing other cities do? Well, uh, the simplest thing, and, and I don't want to be too blunt about this, but this is a chapter in my book, stop being dumb. You know, stop being uh, 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 silly about, uh, about how you create the city. Stop looking backwards and start looking forward. So I just this week spent a day with urban planners, and they were looking at data from 2014 and 2015 in terms of what's called the modal split. The model split is the mode of transport that you use to get around in a city. And in most U.S. cities, it will be something like 70, 80% private cars and public transport, et cetera, et cetera. There are European cities like Copenhagen where you have 70, 80% bicycle, lots of pedestrians, and maybe only 10, 20% private vehicle. Um, but if you're taking a look at data from 2014 and 2015, then you completely miss a number of trends like ride hailing, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts and, 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 and the DDs. You completely miss bike sharing. You completely miss this, this emerging trend of, um, of e-scooters. So 
if you're looking backwards all the time and you're making a plan for the year 2050, and most cities actually, you know, go out there and say, hey, we're going to make a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, a 30-year plan, they're doing it based on data and facts and figures and, and, and a way of life from, you know, 10, 20 years ago, then they're never going to be able to, you know, be as agile and, 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 nimble and attractive, frankly, as well to talent as uh, a city that says, look, um, I'm not just going to um, accept that these changes are happening. I'm going to embrace them. I'm going to foster them. I'm going to be the city that enables these changes to happen. And that's what's going to bring the the new businesses in. That's what's going to bring the uh, the young entrepreneurs in. That's what's going to bring in the talent, the, in, uh, the innovation, um, and that's what's going to allow a city to grow. Um, again, a city needs to focus on livability um, and, and innovation as well uh, in order to have any chance of not just surviving but thriving into the future. Okay. All right, so what are you seeing cities do anywhere in the world that's making a difference in mm. livability? Um, I think there are some great examples of cities that have basically made a, made a decision whatever it was 10, 20, 30 years ago and have stuck to that decision. I think that's an important thing. Again, um, Cop- using Copenhagen as an example, they had the same congestion disaster and mess that most <laughs> big cities have today. They had that 30 or 40 years ago, but they made a, a decision then to change it. So irrespective of party, irrespective of politics, they were very, very persistent and consistent in terms of fostering uh, pedestrianization and bicycle lanes. And today, um, you know, it it consistently ranks among the top five most livable cities uh, in the world. And you can see other cities making that choice now. Barcelona has implemented what are called super blocks. Super blocks, if you imagine any city that has a grid system, um, and imagine four streets next to each other, and you take the two streets, or four streets in parallel, and you take the two streets in the middle, and you shut them down to, to traffic. You basically say, on those streets, we're only going to allow pedestrians, bicycles, and deliveries, and residents. And even deliveries and residents are going to drive at less than five miles an hour. Every other traffic, whether it be buses or, or through traffic, et cetera, has to go through those remaining one-third of streets. Now, not very popular initially, but on the other hand, um, massive improvements in terms of uh, air quality. All of a sudden, you see kids uh, playing you know, soccer on the streets and riding their bicycles freely, um, you know, people uh, pulling up their chairs and playing cards and, 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 and things like that on the street where previously you know, the, the delivery vans used to, used to be. And that is a quality of life that um, other cities can not just aspire to, but also achieve if they make decisions today, but also stick to their guns tomorrow. Okay. We're not always very good at that. We're good at making the decision, but we're not very good at following through. um, This is fascinating that Barcelona is doing this, because I have argued in several of the major cities around the world that I visit that if you shut down half the streets and you just forbid mm. anything other than absolutely essential traffic, like repair vehicles, mm. and force yeah. everything else to be less pedestrian, 
so that you could have more traffic flow. Um, I've always thought it would work, but then people tell me that doesn't work either. So, okay, it's good to know it is being done. I, I think, let, can I maybe introduce uh, one concept, um, and that's the yeah. concept of induced demand, and, and urban planners can talk your ear off on this, but the, basical, the basic premise of induced demand is if you create the infrastructure, if you create the road infrastructure for cars, you will induce more demand for driving. So mm-hmm. um, uh, the flip side of that is if you want more people walking, create more pedestrian infrastructure. If you want more people on bikes, create bicycle infrastructure. Um, and it seems to be working. Again, using uh, Paris as an example, they shut down uh, the right bank of the Seine uh, River to traffic, and all of a sudden they actually reduced the number of cars that drove in the city because the people said, okay, fine, I can't do that anymore. Hey, that's great. I can use alternate modes of transport to get in. And so it's just, uh, oh, you know, to use cars, um, nudge theory um, how do you nudge people towards alternate behaviors? Okay. All right. Any other examples you want to share? And Boy, there's, a great, uh, there's, there's a great concept. There's, there's good ones, good ones and, and bad ones. Uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, I grew up in, in upstate New York, and so there was a, uh, a city of Syracuse um, thought, many, many years ago, this is decades ago, that um, it could improve the center of town by, you know, having highways that led into the, the center of the city. And what it actually created is people passing through the city completely decimated the inner cities. And, you know, you can see that not just in Syracuse, but in many, many other cities that highways, uh, especially highways that pass through cities, have completely decimated the, the workings and of, of the inner city, and that's a real tragedy, and it's, it's something that urban planners are now beginning to see and to address. So you can already see that these urban highways are being taken down. There's a great example, I think it's in Mexico City, where they took, a, took an urban highway and they, they shut it down to traffic, and they are now you know, putting in um, uh, trees and, 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 and all kinds of stuff, much like the High Line in New York, by the way, which um, mm-hmm. obviously a different set of circumstances, but has become a very, very, very vibrant space for the community and for community life. Mm-hmm. Well, Boston, a number of years ago, made the decision to take one of the major highways that goes through downtown and especially as a transit to the airport and basically bury it underground. So oh, tunnel it around so that you now have traffic flowing actually at a reasonable rate most occasions. And you've got a beautiful green or um, park land on top of it that is just makes life really pleasant, much more pleasant, I should say, in downtown Boston. Okay, um, Lucas, we're going to take a break again. So with me today is Lucas Neckerman, and the book we have been talking about is Smart Cities, Smart Mobility. But you can also start with his first book, The Mobility Revolution. And the notion here is this is not just about cars. This is about a lot of things. It's about fundamentally the way we live and the cities that are, especially in the megacities, that are starting to focus on how we improve the quality of life, air quality of life, transportation quality of life, um, ease of getting around, ability to have play spaces, cities that are improving the quality of life in substantive ways are having increasing power. Mayors are gathering together around the world to talk about how to do that. And those are also the cities that are attracting 
new industry. They're attracting new residents. They're attracting entrepreneurs. They're attracting a thriving um, tech economy and great innovation. And that's where you want to be. So when we come back from break, I want to talk about what does all of this mean for employers and ultimately for employees in our work environment. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Lucas Neckerman, and he's with Neckerman Strategic Advisors, Lucas, as you can tell from the conversations, does a lot of consulting and a lot of keynote speeches. And again, I'm going to repeat the book, Smart City, Smart Mobility, and Lucas's website, www.neckerman.net, also active on Twitter as L. Neckerman. What strikes me out of all of this conversation is, yes, we're all aware of the conversations around driverless cars and automation and robotics and et cetera. And there's speculation on both sides of the equation of how fast and how quickly and the implications. What strikes me talking to you, Lucas, is that we have to stop and truly look at the broader implications, particularly around electrification and around zero ownership and our transportation, our movement around in life, our services that we tap into accordingly, and ultimately, as you rightly say, our quality of life. And the changes that we make in our cities are going to have dramatic impact on whether people want to live in those cities and how we feel about the life we have in that city. Mm. So rightly now, let's turn to talk about what does all of this mean for employers. So if I am leading a business or even the business owner, what should I be thinking about? What are the implications for work? Right, right. So let me start. Let me start uh, by thinking about the auto industry, um, which has been, you know, the the bedrock of a number of industries, right? certainly around Detroit, but also in, you know, something twenty, thirty percent of the industry in, in in Germany, in the UK, and in Spain, and, and other countries as well. 
Um, within the last five years, every single auto company has now re- redubbed itself and called itself a mobility company. This is the direct result of a bunch of startup companies, you know, and, and their incredible success. You know, it's the success of Elon Musk and Tesla. It's the success um, uh, even earlier of, of Zipcar, who's been around for almost 20 years, and it's the success of Uber. Now, love him or, or hate him, Transclinic, you know, he was runner-up um, for Times Person of the Year a couple of years ago, not because he created Uber, but for his impact on the future of work. And this, this has turned into a term now. We talk about Uberization. We talk about it sometimes in a negative context, but maybe we can see the positive side of this as well because I speak to enough drivers who say, well, hey, this has completely changed my life, the way I lead my life. Um, it's given me greater flexibility. It's allowed people to focus on, on, on other pursuits as well. Um, if I think about, you know, the way I run my own uh, business as well, it's like my, you know, we can always find talent available to work on projects. I found talent from around the world. I use platforms like freelancer.com, Fiverr for, uh, and, and Fiverr.com for simple tasks. And then if I have a consulting task, I, there's always a lot of expertise available on a freelance basis for complex assignments. So um, the, the good news is really that you get the most knowledgeable people this way rather than, you know, having a consulting organization that tries to force fit existing staff that just happen to be available onto projects. So it's forcing a lot of, or it's enabling a lot of industries um, uh, and companies and forcing a lot of others uh, to to change their ways. Um, I'm a, I'm a, as you can probably tell, a really big fan of this freedom of work, um, uh, which, you know, for the individual might be what we would call a portfolio career, but for a company, it's a it's a collection of of uh, passionate and expert freelancers that come together to achieve rather than just, um, you know, uh, participate in work groups. Okay. But this, uh, this is an important topic, this whole notion of the um, gig economy, many people have called it. But mm. I'm going to stay with this, the sense of the freelancers, of people who come to work with your company because they're excited about the opportunity, the thing, the project they're going to be doing right there. That has all mm. sorts of complexities, so I have some employees that are full-time permanent employees. They have various mm. feelings about all these freelancers coming in. I have freelancers coming and going. Can I be sure that I keep freelancers for long enough to actually finish the job? And how do right. I integrate my freelancers with my full-time employees and make sure that there's a seamless team happening? I mean, those are big questions without an awful lot of straightforward answers on them. Any thoughts? Well, uh, and add on top of that, sometimes you have the complexities of geography um, uh, where you may have people working in different parts of the globe where it's just not possible to get them together, um, uh, uh, certainly not in the confines of regular working hours. Um, so, you know, that's an added uh, complexity. But um, we have to think about, A, the incentives, 
Um, you know, incentives in many companies are still very, very much geared around, well, hey, you're going to participate in this work group and we're going to pay you for the number of hours and, and, you know, the number of work groups and the number of things. We need to much, much, much more strongly go into um, uh, uh, notions like uh, uh, achievement and, um, um, you know, group achievement and things like that um, in that sort of environment because that then, you know, compels people um, to work together to get, the, you know, get, get the project done as opposed to just uh, sitting it out. Um, there's probably other elements as well. I mean, it's a big leadership challenge, no doubt. It's, uh, there's a leadership challenge in the, in the geographical dispersion. There's a leadership challenge in the um, mixture of um, uh demography and psychography of, of, of the individuals that come and go. Um, there's a leadership challenge when people, you know, they don't have a long-term incentive, but they do have very much a short-term incentive. So they're working for the project, but they're not working for your company, um, which you just need to be aware of. Um, I, I certainly don't have the answer for it because <laughs> sometimes, you know, it is very, very challenging, um, as you well know. Um, to do that, but large companies can perhaps do this in certain environments, certain projects, certain activities, um, and in particular, learn from you know learn from the startups, and that's I think what's yeah. what's happening a lot now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one of the reasons uh, projects yeah. are so exciting is because of the variety. I don't get stuck into doing yeah. the same thing over and over and over again. Um, I get to see new places, new people, new approaches, new projects, new products, new all sorts of things. And I think that's part of what is so exciting in the startup is the variety that I get. Yeah. And the I, mean, I, I spend about half my time working with, with, with startups for whom, you know, titles mean absolutely nothing. The canteen is a delivery service and getting stuff done doesn't require working groups um, because, you know, these... These things like agility uh, that that companies are struggling with now. Well, that's that's in the core DNA of, of of startups because they have to be or they're dead. Yeah, yeah. If you don't, you're not going to be there. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that, of course, go on with startups. Um, I, I also personally believe, and I would because this becomes part of my sweet spot, is that we are getting more interested again in the ways in which we form teams and bring those teams together, mm. make those teams efficient, and that now we have to learn to do that far more quickly than we've ever had to do it in the past. Um, and as you mm. rightly say, when I've got a breadth of cultures and a breadth of geographies, so our ways, our classic ways of communicating are not as straightforward as they have been always in the past. So let me move on to talk about, ooh, really quickly, about another topic, just we've got about a couple of minutes here before we end, sure. which is this whole notion of people working from home. You know, as cities mm-hmm. get bigger and the movement across the city gets harder and harder and harder, there's increasing pressure to be at home. What's your thoughts about this flexible working from home trend? Uh, Simply put, yes and no. I mean, we are, as a as a human species, we like interaction and we need interaction. And and the key thing that we as humans will bring to the table in the future is not our ability to, you know, um, uh, screw on doors or you know make widgets or you know paint this or fix that. Our key ability as humans in an age of automation 
an age of um, AI is the creativity that we bring to the table. Um, if, if, if we can let go, if we can let go and accept that robots are going to do some stuff better than us, and AI is going to do stuff better than us, and rather than fight for those jobs and fight for those things which may not be worth fighting for, uh, you know, as humans, let's embrace what it is that we are exceptionally good at, and that's, uh, that's creative solutions, because at the end of the day, somebody still has to make those robots. It's creativity that is, um, well, I, I don't want to sound too prophetic here, but that's the, you know, that's, that's the remaining relevance for, for, for us as humans in that, in that age. And the way we foster that creativity is to bring people together. So whilst it is certainly for routine activities and in the context of you know, saving money and, you know, leaving as little carbon footprint as possible, et cetera, et cetera, attractive to work from home. At the same time, I also think we need to bring people together to exercise our creativity and to create new things because that's what we as humans can do and can do best and still better than robots. <laughs> Lucas brilliantly said. I love how you nicely keep room for both. So, yes, the not working to working remotely, I guess I should say, for routine activity, but what we really do as humans is come together, build that creative solution playing off of each other, and I think you're right in saying that that takes more face-to-face, not less face-to-face time. Okay, Lucas, quite a lot. What a lovely conversation. It's been fabulous. We are unfortunately out of time. My guest today, again, Lucas Neckerman, the book I highly recommend, Smart Cities, Smart Mobility. And again, I come back to what's so fascinating to me about this topic is while you would think that it's about cars, it actually is about much more than cars. It's about how we live our lives. It's about how we work. It's about how we build our cities. It's about how we think about our future. And it's as employers and employees, how we think about um, our coming together and our ability to get together. So, Lucas, thank you very much. What a delight. Thank you, Wanda. I've really, really enjoyed it, and all the best to, uh, to you and, and to, your, to your listeners as well. Fabulous. And then join us again for another episode in How to Get Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.